0: Transparency Project on the Inside Lens Network, with programming dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved homicides and suspicious deaths. If you have a question or comment for today's guest, please call in at 646-478-0982. That's 646-478-0982. My name is Denny Griffin. My co-host, Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com, is with us. Hi, Delilah.
1: Hey Denny, um, I just want to give a big plug for our network, the Inside Lens Network. This this network of shows has been around for a very very long time. We have about 700 podcasts to listen to, so you know there's something for everybody. But some of the shows that we produce. Highlight criminal cases, and you know we may be talking about some open investigations today, but I want you to know that our intent is to allow families and experts to present information for consideration by you, the listeners but our podcasts and our posts in no way represent the guests. We don't claim to solve cases, nor do we wish to jeopardize any open investigations. So, that being said, our our guests present their information, and while we might suggest resources and places for assistance, we aren't liable for what people do with with our information. So, that's the the legal mumbo
0: jumbo for today. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Ms. D. Uh, today, we're going to talk about investigating cold cases with Cheryl McCullum, director of the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute. Cheryl began her career with training at the Rape Crisis Center at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. At this time, she received some of her best hands-on training in contact with victims. She went on to work for the Department of Corrections, the Secretary of State, and an internship with the FBI during the Pan-American Games in Indianapolis, Indiana. Along with becoming the State Director of Mothers Against Drunk Driving, Cheryl attained the rank of captain in the Special Ops Division of the Reserve Unit with the Fulton County Georgia Sheriff's Office, and was the director of police training in Metro Atlanta District Attorney's Office under their domestic violence project. While Cheryl was an investigator for Cobb County, Georgia Juvenile Court, she began teaching college part-time. She became an international law enforcement trainer for the Department of State. She had the opportunity to create two cold case squads after attending the prestigious Henry Lee Institute and recently completed training as a crime scene technician for the state of Georgia, providing value to her position with Pine Lake Police Department Cold Case Squad. Cheryl, welcome to the show. So much. It's good to talk to you again. Uh, yeah, it's been uh, what a couple of months. <laughs>
2: you know, we had a good time, didn't
0: the, we? Yeah, CrimeCon. It was a, it was a great event. Uh, I certainly would encourage anyone who has the opportunity to attend next year to do that. It's uh, it's something you'll certainly enjoy and remember. Uh, Cheryl, hey, cool, th- let's
2: Dad, be- I got to tell
0: you. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Gerald, Let's be, Let's begin, if you would, by telling us about the CCIRI, uh, such as when it started, how it gets its cases, and so forth.
2: Well, we started in 2004, and we just kind of started. This is the way we decided to teach students is to bring actual cases to them and let them see with truly fresh eyes. Um, if they could think of any solvability factors that perhaps hadn't been tried yet. And then that just kind of matriculated into a larger number of schools and a larger number of experts. And, um, you know, some of the cases we get because we reach out to families because we think maybe this particular case, there's something we could help with, or there's maybe an expert we can lead them to. Um, We also have been, you know, contacted by law enforcement, and by families. So those are the three ways we get cases.
0: Uh, when, when you get uh, a case, well, let's just pretend here for a moment. If, if you get a referral, if, if someone contacts you and would like assistance with their, with their cold case, um, uh, how would you vet that or how would you screen it to determine whether or not it's something you would handle and how much information uh, uh, does the uh, submitter need to send you for you to be able to do an evaluation, at least an initial evaluation of whether Mm -hmm. it sounds like something.
2: The short answer is it depends. There are some cases where we might, just get a cursory understanding of what happened, but we may automatically see. wait a minute, have they tried it? Because if they haven't, they need to start there. So even without getting a whole lot of information, we may be able to say, you need to start here. Um, and I'll give you an example with uh Bill Thomas, whose sister was killed during the Colonial Parkway murders. You know, I spoke with him over the phone, and in our first conversation within the first several minutes, I said, well, have they used the invat? Is that something they're going to do? And Bill has worked this case for 30 years. He has met with the FBI repeatedly. He has done his own legwork. He is probably the leading expert on the case. And his response to me is, what is that? Well, at that point, (laughs) in my opinion, everything needed to stop, and their focus needed to be to get the items of clothing tested with MVAT. Because, you know, we don't really need a geographical profile. We get it. And, you know, you can take a lot of time doing other things, but the money right now, to me, is on the MVAT in that case. That's where it would be on a lot of cases right now. The latest greatest tool. everybody should be
0: using. Can you explain a little bit uh, more uh, about what that is so the listeners understand sure. what we're talking about?
2: Sure. It is a tiny machine. It looks like a miniature steam cleaner for carpets. It's it's tiny. It's, you know, two feet by foot. And, you know, it has this pressure where the solution is literally just pumped into the item, and it's sucked right back up, and is put in you know, sterile containers and it's solidified so that at the end of it what you have is the purest sample to extract DNA of any way of doing it. it, it it'd be plobbing to the point, plobbing is almost a joke when it comes to certain items, you know. Um, they've had luck with shell casings, they've had luck with clothing, they've had luck with, you know, obscure items that some of the cases they've solved that have been cold 40 years in the inva has solved them, 40 years. And the great thing is that you've got a company that's made it to where a, a department could afford it. I mean, it's not an astronomical amount of money to buy the machine, and they come out and they train you, so it's not like they're just sending you the machine and you don't know what to do with it. It's it's pretty phenomenal, I'm telling you, and it's a game-changer and now that we have the 23andMe and Ancestry. dot com and the other places where people can, you know, put the DNA in, it's great to be able to go and get it to put it in there.
0: Yeah, because uh, a little later on, I want to get to this, some of the new technolog- technological developments, and certainly this is one of them. That, uh, in fact, uh, just yesterday. I was in contact with a man named Garland Atkinson, and his son was one of two people murdered in 1990 in Houston, Texas, in what's referred to as the Lover's Lane Murders. And during our discussion, uh, this is an unsolved or both unsolved homicides, and during our discussion, Garland said that uh, the more he hears about these old cases, 30, 40, 50-year-old cases being solved and people finally, after all these years, being held accountable, um, he said he hopes the people who murdered his son, uh, that that causes them some pause. That just because mm-hmm. they've skated for 28 years, it doesn't mean they're never going to be caught. So uh, he's hoping that that people like that uh, – do a little sweating uh, knowing that they aren't out of the woods yet and uh, and some of these cases are being, uh, being successfully resolved after all those years
2: yeah there's, there's no question that's the way it's going right now it's in bounds now um, it's harder and harder and harder for people to hide because even if they don't have your DNA if they have your cousin's DNA <laughs> you know I mean it's like you know, the world is a whole lot smaller.
0: <laughs> Amen to that. Thank, thankfully, <clears throat> thankfully that's the way it's going. It's starting to balance back a little more toward the, uh, you know, the uh, the victims and the survivors, and the victims uh, being having the chance to see justice done. Uh, you know, and not give up hope. That's certainly a great uh, a great thing. Now, it, that's a. When people contact you, do you expect them to have, before they contact you, do you expect them to have uh, records and so forth, such as police reports and autopsy reports Mm -hmm. and that type of thing? Uh, Should they have that information? Should they have already obtained that? Sure.
2: And, And actually, the more information they have, the better. Delilah and I were talking a little bit about a case that we're both familiar with where that victim has um, their loved one's diary. like So like anything that's going to give us the victimology, anything that's going to give us a better understanding, you know, crime scene photographs, autopsy reports, police reports, I mean, obviously that's going to help. And usually in cold cases, the family already has a mask as much as they can. Um, so that's again a big help but I've got people that sometimes will call because they don't have a lot or they haven't been able to get a lot and we can try and help them obtain that and and walk them through Freedom of Information Act and other things but you know I mean obviously the more information the better but you know not everybody you know we can help either I mean some people law enforcement has done an incredible job and maybe we haven't Thought of anything different to do or a way to help, and you know we don't want to be in the way either. You know, it just depends. It's a case by case thing. I mean, we get people that contact us all the time, and sometimes we refer them to other places because it's you know out of our wheelhouse, or maybe there's somebody else that we know of that works for a another organization, and we certainly tell them this is the person you need. You know, and we just you know it's a small community, so we all help each other anyway.
0: Yeah. Uh, that, uh, question that, the uh, situation that, uh, I run into fairly often, more often than I like is the people, uh, a case that's been ruled a suicide and the family, mm-hmm. the survivors are convinced that it is not, that there was, uh, some type of foul play involved. Uh, and when I get – they're very uncomfortable to deal with because the families, the people that contact me are very positive, convinced that their loved one would not have taken their own life. and But it turns out that they have no evidence of any kind of that. It's a gut feeling they have. And, right. um you can't do a whole lot with gut feelings. You need at least, my in my opinion, you need more than that. There's got to be something, some type of evidence uh, to indicate that there was a homicide. And uh, I, I hate to tell those people that I don't really know where to send them, would you know who to refer them to if if they don't have anything other than a gut feeling. Do, do you ever get people contacting you with that type of situation where they don't really have any any type of evidence to support? their feelings?
2: Yes. Um, You know, sometimes you just have to have serious conversations, that knowing something and proving it are not the same thing. I say that over and over and over. There's a lot of things I may know, but I can't prove it, you know, and that's what this comes down to. You know, what can you prove that's going to get your case, you know, looked at, reopened, or into a courtroom? So, you know, it's one of those Gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, and it's not that you don't believe the family. I mean, they knew the loved one better than anybody. And it's not that sometimes even when you hear the story, even yourself, you go, yeah, that is weird. You know, that is odd. Um, We had a case where it was ruled a suicide and the gun was in the victim's opposite hand that he would shoot with. So, yeah, that gives you pause right there. I mean, the gun's in the wrong hand. I mean, that's a little too Agatha Christie to ignore, (laughs) you know what I mean? But at the same time, is that going to be enough for the DA to say, oh, okay, he was murdered? No, it's not.
0: It, Yeah, it, it, very uncomfortable. Like you say, gut-wrenching in some places, heart-wrenching. Uh, but it is. It, it, it is what it is. And like well, you it, say, you have to have a serious –
1: Let me ask a question real quick here to Cheryl. Um, You know, when you're in a cross situation like that where the evidence isn't there, you you may have all of the speculation and circumstantial things going on in a case like that, but there's no hard evidence. That's a hard one to explain to a family. How do you handle that? I
2: mean, again, you know, A lot of honest conversations and a lot of review and review with the family. Um, You know, you sit down with the mom and you say, okay, this is what I see. Do you see the same thing? But here's where our problem is. So, you know, again, you have things that don't look right and you have things that make you go, huh, like that's suspect. That's odd. That doesn't fit. You know, so it's something that you want to go back and look over. But is that going to be enough to go to a DA to say you need to reopen this or we need to change the death certificate to undetermined? It's not enough, especially when they feel like they've done an intense investigation and they've already ruled and they're done with it. They're finished. So you have to come up with something that's going to get everybody's attention that they cannot refute, and that's difficult to do in these situations.
0: I, I think too. Uh, in, in addition to that suicide type of issue, um, trying to explain what the police may have done. I would, a lot of police. I'm pro, I'm very pro law enforcement. Uh, like you say, Cheryl, do a hell of a job, and they go all out and they do leave no stone unturned and sometimes they just hit a dead end. I mean, that's just the way it is. Uh, not all mm-hmm. cases are solvable or at least solvable as quickly as the survivors would like to, to see themselves. Uh, what I'm wondering is when you get uh, a, a family that, that is very frustrated uh, because of no uh, no resolution to the case and they believe the police in, in their particular case, have not done a very good job on in the investigation. Uh, for example, uh, maybe some of the, the last people to have seen or spoken with the victim uh, have never been interviewed, for example. Uh, when, when the survivors hear that type of thing, they get uh, a little unnerved, wondering, well, you know, They've watched enough Law and Order or whatever to know that that's one of the first things you should do, or the, is, is talk to the, the people who last had contact with the uh, with the deceased or the missing person or whatever. Um, mm-hmm.
2: at,
0: when you run into a case like that where there may be an issue with the police investigation, um, is that something you would get involved with, uh, or or no?
2: Again, it depends. I mean, it's a case by case. I mean, we've had cases where that was, you know, part of the frustration from the family. But again, the reality becomes: did the police feel there was a need to interview that person? Was there a void in their information that needed, you know, needed that person in particular to, you know, particular to be interviewed? Um, a lot of times, you know, we try to be a liaison between the police and the family. Um, if they can explain to us why something was done in a certain way, we will certainly try to, you know, clear things up for the family. And, then you know this as well as anybody. Rarely are you going to have a law enforcement person that just doesn't care and doesn't want to do it. I mean, I have not found that to be the case. Normally, it we've hit a brick wall. I don't know what else to try. Um, or... They don't know how to explain it to the family again because they've already tried to show them and tell them. But what you try to do, again, is you review the case. Is there something that we can see that needs to be done to either give this family resolution or I, I, I've, got, I've got one right now that all the family wants to do is see the crime scene photographs. Those photographs would answer a lot of questions immediately. So there's been a a lack of willing to to make that happen. So we're trying to make that happen. But you know the answers are going to be there. What this family member wants to know, it's in the it's in the picture. It's either going to be a yes or a no. So done years ago to bring some peace to this family to show them here it is. This is what we told you. But by not doing that, almost feeds
0: the conspiracy. Yeah, and does that make I sense? think too, it does. It does, and I was just mulling that over. Uh, it does make sense, and I think there are a lot of cases, or a lot. I, I don't know what the definition of a lot is, but there are cases where the investigating agency, maybe the uh, the detective, the lead detective or whoever just doesn't have a very good bedside manner. You know what I mean? A, and, and, and an overly aggressive, aggressive family that's on the phone two or three times a week demanding this and that, um, you know, where eventually their calls don't get returned and so forth. So, uh, uh this might not be the right phrase, but it reminds me of customer service at, at various companies. Um uh, it, it, if if they if the customer service people are non responsive to your complaint or your concern, you get aggravated and then things mm-hmm. kinda of go downhill from there. And um I, I think that also is a problem then, uh or or causes or can lead to problems when you don't have a good relationship between the investigators and the family.
2: I I think in general law enforcement could do better the way they communicate during investigations. Um, There's a human side to it where those phone calls need to be returned, period. There's, There's really no excuse not returning a phone call from a parent or a sibling or a spouse or anybody that's lost a loved one. There's no excuse. In a timely manner. Understood that there's more cases. Understood you know, you've got field work and you're out of the office a lot and you've got vacation and you've got off days and when you get back, you've got new cases. We all get that, but those phone calls need to be returned. And when you have something that you can share, you should do so in a timely manner. If there is absolutely nothing new, you can communicate that too. Just want to let you know I hadn't forgot about you. There's just nothing new to report. Just want to let you know, because you know when people feel like, well, I hadn't heard from the police officer in four years. I mean, they just feel like there's nothing. They're not thinking about their loved one. They're not working on it. Nothing is happening, and that very likely is not the case. They just haven't communicated that.
0: Yes, and I. So yeah, I totally agree that they certain agencies at least could do a lot better on their and their communications uh skills and, and like you say, even if there's nothing. It it just yep. makes the uh the family feel good to know that they're still uh, in the police mind, you know, that they haven't been right. just tossed uh, on a shelf someplace. Um so yeah, that is a great thing. And you know, we've been talking about um Your organization getting cases, I neglected to ask you how people can reach you. If somebody has a question or suggestion for a case, how would they contact you?
2: Well, we have a website, and they can email us through there, or they can send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, however you want to contact us will be fine. The website is coldcasecrimes.org, and then the Facebook is Cold Case Investigative Research
0: Institute. So there are multiple ways to reach you out what uh, Cheryl, you know, I, I guess probably it uh, depends, you know, on, on your overall value, how many cases you are doing at a particular time. But um, what would be, would you say a general uh, rule of about how long it would take for you to respond to it, to an email uh, uh, request from someone?
2: Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> it depends. I mean, <laughs> if I get uh, um, you know twelve emails today and twelve tomorrow, I can I can probably you know answer fairly quickly depending on what it is. But you know sometimes if people send me a you know a three page email, it's going to take a minute to go through it before I respond. Um, and, and we get inundated. It's usually like after CrimeCon, there's a big swell. After like your show, there might be a number. Don't put a time limit on me, but I will say this. If you don't hear from me, reach back out, um, you know, because maybe I, I read it, you know, and I meant to respond after a meeting or something, and I got on to something else. But, I mean, you know, keep keep contacting me. You know, somebody will get it to me. Call Denny show and say, please call her. Denny knows how to reach me, <laughs> you know, so don't stop trying. You
0: know. Yeah, you you can't give up in these things if, you know, um, if you don't get a response, you got to try, try again until, until you do. Hmm. And that's not just to reach Cheryl. It's, that's anybody, you know, if, that you need sure, to talk anybody. with. You can't. I mean,
2: we're human beings, I, you know, I mean, sometimes I might get even a student that said, oh, I'm supposed to you know, do a so and so or somebody wanted me to tell you and it might have been a month ago. So I mean it's we're human, you know, definitely you know, try your best to you know and even like type in the subject, say second email or third email and I'll go, Oh my gosh <laughs> what in the world?
0: And just let me know.
3: <laughs>
2: and again, we may uh, not be able to do anything to help you. Um and I'll I'll give an example with um Amber Hagerman. Amber Hagerman's case was worked by Detective Ford, and I believe I didn't want to know anything he had done. So when I talked to him, I just told him, you know, who we were and what we were going to try to do with Amber's mom, Donna. And I said, I don't want to know anything you've done yet. He said, okay. So we went and we made like a list of all the things surrounding that case that we thought we might should try. And I went back to him, and I went down the list, and every one he had done, every one. And I'm like, okay, we're going to go make another list, and I'll be back. (laughs) Because, like, you're working with somebody that literally he thought of everything, and he had thought of some things that weren't even on our list. So it wasn't that he wasn't dedicated. It's not that he didn't want to solve Amber's case. Um, It was just one of those things where, you know, sometimes it's the perfect storm. And somebody's able to get in and get out and do great harm, virtually unseen, no tag number, no real description, no, you know, direction of travel. They, they Who knows? Who knows who this person is? But it's not for a lack of devotion and dedication from that officer. It's just not. It's not.
0: Do, do you find, Cheryl, that um... – general that in most cases or generally when, when you contact a police agency about a cold case that you're uh, involved with uh, are they pretty receptive or do you find some of them say you know that i don't want anybody reviewing my work and, and you know that type of thing um do, do you generally get a good response or no
2: generally absolutely there's every now and then yeah you, know, you still have some um not old way of thinking, but certainly uh, there was a a time in the 90s, especially, that I think law enforcement felt like, oh, I have to hate the media. You know, I'm not going to deal with the media. I'm not going to talk to the media. The media can be your best tool on a cold case. They can get the word out to people that you couldn't even dream of reaching that many people. So even though police departments have Facebook pages and that sort of thing, the numbers are minuscule compared to what you know, your local nightly TV show can do. And then your, you know, heavy hitter people, you know, can do. So sometimes I've had people say, well, y'all are associated with, you know, different media outlets. So I don't want to give you anything. That's just silly. You know, I mean, we keep secrets too. you know, we understand the integrity of a case. We only go to the media when we feel like that's the tool we need to use. Um, And, you know, to keep the conversation going, to reach people that may know something, some of the other experts, and they they understand that, hey, they're not here to Monday morning quarterback. They're not here to, you know, hurt the case. We're only here to help if we can. And, again, if we can't do anything, we can't do anything.
1: Well, Cheryl, what do you think about sometimes the family expectations? I mean, When someone comes to you with a cold case, it's a cold case. So they've tried all kinds of other things. So do you feel sometimes that you are like the last resort in, in resources that this family might have?
2: I think so, yeah. But let me say this with a family expectation. When you have sat for seven years, five years, 20 years, like Bill Thomas, 30 years, should be paramount you should expect the entire world to stop while somebody looks for your child solves your sister's case finds out who killed your dad we should all be helping so family expectation that's okay with me it just has to be reasonable does that make sense I mean they have to understand that by coming to us especially utilizing you know college students and other experts you can certainly get five organizations to look at it but you have to understand there's going to be limitations there especially if you don't have police reports and things of that nature and witness statements if we're you know starting from ground zero trying just to just do a timeline or just you know try to go from your it might be slow going you know and I tell people all the time we are not going to be fast but we'll be thorough you know but we don't get in a hurry because it, I mean, a lot of this stuff takes a lot of time. Did you, right.
0: did you find I, the families? Uh, I'm sorry, I, was you go ahead. Say
1: I totally agree that family expectations have to be in the forefront, especially with cases like what you handled. That, of
2: course. you know,
1: they've, they've tried everything, they've tried everything else. Their frustration level has got to be over the top. And, you know, what, you, what, you what have.
2: Has happened? Susan Levy Just look at that for a minute You have a child that goes missing Then she's found Murdered a year later Then there's an arrest Then the person gets an appeal Then the person has Gotten a new trial Then that person is let out What is she Supposed to do with that I mean it's like she has Been failed at every Level so, should her expectation be high? Yes, the u s attorney should call her, as far as I'm concerned. the The director of the FBI should call her. This should never have happened. Beth Holloway. I mean, she has to basically find out from a TV show what's going on? It's not okay. There's no excuse in that.
1: No. Well do you often feel like you're you have to come in behind and clean up messes here and there to to give the family a clearer picture of what, what has been done or what can be done or what really can't be done.
2: Delilah, I think we all do that. I think I know for a fact you do it. I've seen you do it in North Carolina. I know Denny does it. I know that you you try to you try to explain it whether it can be accepted or not. And, again, I'm not saying that anybody did anything wrong. I'm saying because the way the system is set up to operate, occasionally you're going to have somebody like a Beth Holloway or a Susan Levy that gets repeatedly kicked in the gut. And it's excruciating to watch and try to explain to her, you know, I don't know why they're not doing certain things on this case. I don't know how you use somebody as your witness. Now, witness turns out to be no good, but then you're not going to use something else that may generate answers. It may not, but I'll be really clear about something. If I say they ought to use the NBAT, and Bill goes, okay, let's learn about it, and we will ask for that. If it fails to generate DNA, from the clothing of the victims of the colonial parkway murder. So what? So what? We tried.
1: Exactly. It's just another and tool no and it's it's that. something that that has eliminated another area of investigation where a lot of times that's what you have to do is eliminate rather than so yes, say that's here's that's this here's I that. Say, you have to, to eliminate. This.
2: But but how how many woods has Monica Cason walked through? How many rivers has she walked through, and creeks and city roadways and back alleys where she didn't result in finding a lost missing person? She walked anyway. And what is she going to do tomorrow? She's going to walk again. She do absolutely. So you don't yes. sit there and say, yes. well, "God, Monica failed yesterday." No, she didn't. No, she didn't fail. Not by a damn sight did she fail. And that's my point. So a lot of times, you know, people say, well, how many have you solved? How, what, have you, you know, what are your numbers or whatever? It ain't about that all the time. And that's what I preach to the students. Don't get caught up on that. What did you do for a family today? Get caught up in that. You tried. You went back and looked at it again because you didn't see something yesterday. Look again. Get a friend of yours to look. Talk about it out loud, like with uh, Moore's Ford Bridge. We had worked on Moore's Ford Bridge a while, and we were up in the loft of the war room, and it was about two o'clock in the morning. And I was delirious. I was wore out, exhausted. I was ready to go home, and the students were just working, 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 and they were talking about the number of possible suspects on the bridge and this mass shooting, and that four people had been killed. And they had both, they had all four been shot over a hundred times apiece. And I said, well, it ain't like bullets disintegrate. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, my God, bullets don't disintegrate. Let's go get them. Let's go excavate the land. Let's see how many bullets, fragments, and casings we can pull out of the dirt and try to figure out how many weapons were used. But it was something that was just said out loud. So sometimes the more you talk, the more ideas you're going to have. And again, it's not because somebody else didn't want to do it. If I had thought about that day one of that case, we'd have done it day one. I didn't think about it. But when we did, we went and got them. <laughs> and it was awesome. It was a great exercise for the students. And, you know, it's just like Denny. When Denny comes and, you know, we're sitting there saying, well, does this look like the mob type thing to you? Does this look like organized crime to you? And Denny's like, I don't know, why don't we get a mob hitman on the phone? Now you're talking? (laughs) Go to the source, man. I mean, that's a game changer. Go to the person that knows. And so, again, I I don't think, you know, when people watch TV and they watch um, results, they think, well, let's do that here. Maybe it can be used on your case. Maybe it can't. I mean, again, it's a case-by-case-by-case-by-case. By case by case by case. But I think almost anything is worth a shot.
0: I I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, I Just a couple of things that I've encountered personally, if I if I might. Um, one case I've been involved with since 2010, and the file is uh, – probably about four inches thick if i haven't read that cover to cover at least 10 times i haven't read it at all and every time i go through it i find something i missed something that didn't hit me uh when uh-huh. i read it the first time or the second time and i've also sent uh, uh well not obviously not the whole file but i've uh, scanned in uh a lot of pertinent information and, and then uh, emailed it to various sources to review. And they have come up with stuff that I missed. So, uh, it, it, so we've developed now a whole lot of questions, uh, that apparently weren't addressed in the police investigations that we're trying to convey to the police that maybe they should take, uh, take a look at some certain things or get some answers. But, yeah, you can't you gotta keep going back because like you say we're all human. Uh, sometimes we're maybe we're tired when we're when we're looking to something and we come back the next morning with a you know, the fresh set of eyes or whatever and, 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 and you see something or the uh asking someone else to take a look. Uh you you can't have your ego to the point that you think nobody can help you that that you think you've done right. it all and that there's nothing else so you got to be willing to uh you know you got to focus on what your job is you're you're trying to help the family and whatever it takes you know within legal bounds to do that if if you have to reach out for assistance yourself then don't worry don't let your pride get in the way uh, Amen. go ahead and do it because think of the family like you say did you help a family today what did you do for them and uh I don't think that can be said enough or stressed enough uh, and it, I think if we all do that we'll probably accomplish a lot more than if we're if we're trying to protect our own turf or our own egos well, you know and
2: I think sometimes They're attempting to do the right. Sometimes, you know, law enforcement, they're going to keep all their cards close to the vest, get it, understand it, respect it. But when you get to a part of a cold case, and I'll use Susan Levy again, why in God's name will you not share everything with her? You should be pretty clear, you know, clear. She didn't kill her daughter. So there should be not a whole lot you're not going to share with her about that case. And, again, she shouldn't find out anything over the news. She shouldn't find out anything, you know, on social media or anything else. But, you know, we've all seen it. I mean, Drew Peterson, all of a sudden he'll pop up about something on all other social media, and that's how the family sees it for the first time. It's horrible. It's horrible. But he's the beast right now.
0: Yeah, and, uh one thing I didn't ask Cheryl, and probably I should have earlier, um, if if someone submits a case to you and you accept it, what 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 do you charge them? What what how much uh, of a fee do you get?
2: Uh, zero. <laughs> we don't charge a cent ever. <laughs> Good. <laughs> no 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 nothing ever. We may need to do some things that might cost money, um, but we don't ever charge the family. So, like, we might have to have uh, ground penetrating equipment. Well, we'll go rent it, but we don't charge the family to do anything ever, or law enforcement
0: ever. It's, uh, that is great news, because a, a lot of the people don't have the resources, you know, to, uh, for example private investigators can cost a lot of money, you know, if it's a, if, if they're going to have to put in a lot of time, um, sure. that can be very expensive. And I, I know some people that if they're charged for records, for example, for uh, record production, uh, you know, they can barely cover that, you know, much less hiring lawyers or hiring private investigators and that type of thing. So, any, I think these families and any services they can get, you know, uh, without uh, charges, uh, certainly gives them a shot at something that they couldn't do if they had to pay for it.
2: Well, I mean, here's what I tell people. Um, and I mean, again, Delilah and I were just talking about somebody offline, but off air. But this particular lady, her sister was murdered and she has done such an extraordinary job virtually by herself but she's had really good people and Monica being one of them but you know there's only going to be so much she can do without extra help Um, and even though we may not quote solve it if we can help get her one thing answered Again, I consider that successful.
0: Absolutely. I, I think, think we have a caller on the line. Cheryl, are you up to seeing if we uh, might have a question for you? Sure. Let's see if we Our can. Our
1: caller know. from area code 678, do you have a question? I do, Delilah. Guess who?
3: <laughs> it's <laughs> Phyllis. It
0: sounds, it sounds <laughs> like Phyllis.
3: You got it, Mr. Danny. And what I wanted to ask Danny, you, Cheryl and Delilah, you know, we go back to say, you know, believing and giving the law enforcement credit and, you know, knowing that they protect and serve. You know, my dad worked alongside the Gulfport Police Department and the Harrison County Sheriff's Department for over 40 years but they turned their back on him and this family to protect the killers. And this is not my words. This is not something that I'm saying. This is public knowledge. It's out there in black and white. It's been proven that they were all involved in the corruption. And one question that eats away at me is from 1967 until 2017, I called. I was probably there for a harassing person to be considered at a time there because I called almost nonstop. Then I weaned off and I slowed down. I went back. But, I mean, a lot of it I was stopped because of my dad. But from 1967 until 2017, when I finally received the four-year information after three times of being denied, I received it. I was told that there were no witnesses, there was no one ever brought in, no evidence produced, no crime scene pictures, no media, no news, no nothing. The family was never called in. When we called, we were put off with the investigators out or someone to call back or nothing. Nothing was ever produced in my brother's case from 1967 until 2017. From 2003, when my father was murdered, or alleged, I have to say alleged, and until 2017, never did I receive anything other than an autopsy report, a forged paper that was not my signature on it, where they destroyed the shell casings four days after my father was murdered, stating that I knew about this, which I did not. So if, you know... When they, I really personally believe that if you knew in 2017 when I got the FOIA request, this Captain Peterson comes and says he has interviewed the people. He's brought in almost everyone that I have spoke about and alleged to have been involved from 1967 until 2017. He states he's talked to them, he's gotten their uh Comments and their remarks and their vivid imagination of to what they feel like really happened. Why? But then he tells
0: me,
3: <coughs> excuse me, he tells me that at the end of it, and it's in the FOIA request. I mean, it's to be, you know, we can read it. That all of a sudden, at the very end, his machine, his audio machine, malfunctioned. He was not able to save any of those interviews. Was he recording everyone at one time? Did it malfunction every time he interviewed someone? Where is all of the papers? They've closed my father and brother's cases as a suicide, and they say they have no reason to deem it any other way, but they will not send no crime scene photos. Cheryl's tried to get them. Everyone I know that have talked, they not even responded back. So how am I to respect and believe that they're really helping?
2: Well, I'm going to take a little bit of this. If Phyllis is, is, her story if if the people listening have not heard her story, they need to go in online and really look at this case. It's talk about twists and turns, but here's the reality. I believe we're going to get the crime scene photographs. I believe that she's going to be able to look at them and have a couple of things answered for her immediately. Not everything, by any stretch of the imagination, but one thing in particular, and she knows what it is, that she will know, yes or no, whether there is something in that photograph or not. And this is not going to be up for any kind of debate or argument. It's either there or it's not.
3: And she and I need to know that um,
2: because it's going to make this case go left or right a little bit. But again, And I have made that statement.
3: I said if I can look at a crime scene photo and I see my father lying there and I know it's not a documented photo or, or somebody has gone right. in and, you know, done something to the photo, it's a really honest photo that wa- was taken, I see my father lying there in a pool of blood with gunshot. see the gun there, no other thing, then I can know. But there are too many discrepancies, as you and Denny both know are. in the story, to believe that my father walked out there in the middle of the day, 430 in the afternoon, took his service to revolver, shot himself in the head. No witnesses, no nothing, no one saw anything, card, jewelry, everything gone, and me say, yeah, he accept- he done suicide.
2: And, Denny, here's the other thing. That detective could have sat with her years ago and showed her one photograph. One. But they won't do it. Oh,
3: so, he told me that know, if I was... He said, "Why don't you come into Gulfport? And we'll talk." <laughs> you know, he gave me that little threatening, "Come on into Gulfport." I knew what he meant. Right.
0: Yeah. When Cheryl said "twists and turns," uh, she wasn't uh, she wasn't overstating it. Uh, that's a very the whole thing is just uh, you know spanning. Spanning all those years from 1967, um, and, and then the apparent lack of cooperation by the uh, by the police, it, it's really a, a frustrating case.
2: It is a How frustrating do you find case. You? But, but here's the reality about the situation where we can at least answer one or two things, um, and then when we need to go to another. Avenue will do that um, but again y'all were talking earlier about how do you handle it with families Phyllis and I have had more than one honest conversation if I believe at the end of all of this and we're not there yet and we're not there yet because we don't have everything um, and I think the crime scene photographs are paramount to look at I think we've got some experts that are on the edge of their seat waiting to review them and once that happens, if we believe that her father took his own life, that's what I'm going to tell her. If I believe that he was murdered, that's what I'm going to tell her. It's just where we're at. I mean, it's not like I've had one conversation with her. I don't even know that I can tell you how many times we've talked or text or messaged, you know, but that's just what you do to get the overall picture. But I do know who all her father was connected to. I do know who he worked with and for. I do know who he socialized with. I do know who he went to visit in Tennessee. I do know who he was the bailiff for. And literally, everybody that he was immediately connected with either wound up murdered or did the killing. Can't ignore that. He literally had a risky life. There's no doubt about it. So you don't just say, yeah, well, I mean, I know that sheriff was murdered, but don't worry about that. And I know his wife was murdered, and I know the judge was murdered and his wife was murdered, but that has no bearing on this case. Okay, well, (laughs) Dan Anderson keeps coming up. So, you know, that's one of those Uh, things. I need to be able to explain it to Phyllis in a way that she can accept or understand and not just go, hey, Phyllis, it's, you know, I'm sure there's a logical explanation. That's not enough for her. That's her dad and her brother. And, you know, you've got two crime scenes. The guns weren't there. You've got, I mean, there's just, there's a lot she needs to be able to understand so that she can accept and move on or she can continue the fight and get some justice. It's one or the other.
0: Yeah, well, as you said, those crime scene photos uh, w- would pretty much be, you know, yes or no situations. I mean, you look at them and That's you the mer- can tell a lot. That's the mer- Yeah. Yep. Um, I hope so. You, you think that uh, at some point you will be able to obtain those photos? Yes.
2: Yeah. I mean, the wheels of justice turn slowly, but they do turn. And... You know, I mean, I know it would be great if you know you could send an email and they send them right back through email and it happens in thirty minutes, but that's just not reality. But I do believe we will get them. Of course, I do.
0: Oh, well, that's great. And I, I, I'd, uh, once they're obtained, you have a chance to look at them. Uh, you know, if there's anything, uh, we could always do a follow-up show because a lot of people are following Phyllis's uh, Phyllis's case. And, uh, yeah, would love to know if there's a break of any kind, or, you know, as, as you say, if, uh, if the photos show, uh, fairly conclusively a suicide, you know, have to know that too. But there needs mm-hmm. to be some resolution to this at some point.
2: Yep, uh, there needs to be. White, well, that.
0: Phyllis, yeah, absolutely. Uh, 1967, my God. Um uh, Phyllis, thank you very much for the call. And, uh, thanks, Katie, thanks, Thank you, Cheryl
3: Delilah.
0: You're welcome. Um, you know, uh, what I'd like to do, and we've got a couple of minutes left here, uh, Cheryl, could you tell the listeners a little bit about CrimeCon? Uh,
3: you know, what it sure. is
0: and, and your your role and so forth? Well, Crime
2: Pond is basically a convention of true crime fans, and they bring everybody that is a true crime expert from TV and radio, and anybody that you've kind of always had a fascination with or you're a fan of, hopefully they'll be in that room with you. So they have people like Nancy Grace and Laura Richards and, you know, just Pat, Denny Griffin. I mean, all kinds of people. So you get to walk around and you get to go to sessions where this year we had Golden State Killer victims do a panel and how he was captured, and that was powerful and extraordinary. And um, the two young girls that were killed in Delphi, Indiana, their families were there to talk about them and you know shed light on the case. Nancy Grace did a session. Detective Christine Menina did a session. I mean, I I just can't even tell you how phenomenal it was and and who all was in that room. There were probably 100 podcasters from all over, and um, Denny was there with his books, and we did a session with, you know, Denny was just phenomenal, I mean phenomenal, and uh, he he came in with his hat and glasses, and it was just, it was game on, and and everybody just (laughs) loved it, and learned a lot, and, and left there wanting to you know help fill a seek justice so you know
0: can can you tell us a little bit about where their uh the next meeting's going to be for 2019 and i don't know if you it'll have new your new orleans
2: yeah yeah baby and uh it'll be and, in the big easy and it's going to be june i believe the 4th through 6th or something like that i'm not sure of the date but it's all over the Crime Time website but I I promise you, um, whether I'm good or not, I will go because it's just that incredible. So, you know, you just if this is something that you love and and you're a fan of a whole lot of you know these incredible people, um, it's where you need to be, no
0: doubt. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna ditto that, and unfortunately we're gonna have to wrap it up here. Cheryl, thanks so much for sharing your expertise with us and keep up the good work. Our I next broadcast awesome. we'll, okay thank you for, thanks again, Cheryl. Our Absolutely next broadcast Four we'll,
2: bucks ago.
0: okay We'll be on July tenth when we'll profile the case of the murder of ten year old Holly Peranan. Please join us then.